0: Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right. Good evening. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, a doctoral program and two new online master of arts programs. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit IWP.edu. It is my pleasure to introduce our speaker this evening, Miss Rebecca Koffler. Ms. Koffler is the author of Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America, and she's also a former intelligence officer who served as a Russian doctrine and strategy specialist in the Defense Intelligence Agency from 2008 until late 2016. She has delivered classified briefings to top US military commanders, NATO ministers, the directors of the CIA and DIA, the White House National Security Council, and senior congressional staff. In her post-public service career, Ms. Koffler is a writer, commentator, and national security consultant. Ms. Koffler, welcome, and thank you for joining us this evening.
1: Thank you very much, Hannah. It's my pleasure to be here. So I'll just um, uh, go ahead and uh, start with a couple of uh, housekeeping items before we delve into uh, Putin's playbook. Uh, First, I'd like to uh, say a disclaimer. Um, The analysis presented in Putin's playbook, my book, which is titled uh, Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America. Um, The analysis is the author's only. I also run a small consultancy called Doctrine and Strategy Consulting. So it's the analysis of Doctrine and Strategy Consulting. The views expressed here are not those of any public um, government agency, the assessments do not represent the views of the intelligence community or any other organization. I'd like to uh, make it clear. And the second thing is I'd like to give a shout out to IWP, the Institute of World Politics, because I completed the intelligence program at IWP. And I am extremely grateful for what I have learned. IWP actually taught me how to be a good intelligence officer, how to conduct analysis in a holistic manner, and how to so- co- watch the talk in a very comprehensive manner without mirror imaging. Um, with uh, proper resources and proper analytic uh, process applied to, um, to the target, if you will. Special thanks to Professor de Grafenried, Dr. Jack Ziek, Dr. John Lanchowski, of course, Professor Dave Thomas, and late Professor Brian Kelly. He's a true American Hero, if you don't know Brian Kelly's uh, history, please uh, look it up. Now on to Putin's playbook. Why did I write this book? So let me first um, explain how I'm gonna proceed with this uh, briefing. I've split it up in four parts. I'm gonna tell you why I've written this book. I'll tell you why you should read it. I'll summarize the content. I'll also tell you the backstory of what it actually took to get this book published. And we're going to go into uh, the Q&A. So I wrote this book because I felt the urgency to provide a warning to American people about the Russian threat. The true Russian threat, not the various conspiracy theories and uh, quote unquote hoaxes, but actually about what Russia and its current President uh, Putin are doing in order to harm America, if you will. So you hear a lot of various stories you know, about Russia and Putin that's been dominating the news for the past uh, year, I would say. Well, actually about five years, it has intensified. Russia has actually escalated its uh, anti-US activities for the past year. But uh, we've been hearing about the cyber attacks, about the Havana syndrome, various other things, election interference, but uh, all of these news are just what we would call accident reporting. Nobody has actually been connecting the dots with the American people to explain what's really going on with Russia and, and why is Putin acting the way that he's acting. Um, so the US government certainly has not done that and um, So I felt like uh, it's time for the American people to know that uh, we are actually at war with Russia, or at least Russia believes that it is at war with America. So uh, why should you read this book? Putin's Playbook actually is the only book on the market currently that presents the entire story, Putin's master plan, if you will, and the various tools in his arsenal, in Russia's arsenal, that uh, Moscow has been using for various purposes, but ultimately to weaken and undermine America. The various books on the market uh, right now about Russia and about Putin, but most of them uh, present, you know, maybe the foreign policy. Maybe um, there's a book on Putin from um, former NIO for Russia, uh, Ms. Fiona Hill, who also served um, as President Trump's uh, Russia advisor. There are other books on various assassinations, um, there are various books on election interference, but this is actually the book that looks at the target holistically and explains what is Putin's mindset, why he's doing things that he's doing, and towards what end. Moving on to um, the summary of the content. So I titled the book uh, Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America. It was not easy to write such a book. As you can imagine, um, there's a big difference between uh, the writing style that an intelligence officer and intelligence analyst would use when developing a PDB, the presidential daily brief, or the national intelligence estimate, or the ICA, the Intelligence Community Assessment or IIR, and actually the style that one would use to write a book. I wanted my book to be accessible for both professionals such as intelligence officers, various national security um, officials, but also, regular Americans. And so I decided that to make it readable, to make it a story within a story. So each chapter in my book is actually introduced with a personal story of how I came to America, how I joined the intelligence community, you might know, or some of you might know that I'm actually a uh, Russian born, I'm a naturalized American. I came to the United States in 1989 because uh, my parents who disagreed with the system, with the Soviet socialist system, encouraged me to one day go to America, the land of freedom and opportunity and justice. And so I came to America, and then after the September 11th terrorist attacks, I was committed to serve and pay back this great country for everything that it has done to me. So I joined the Unity to serve and to contribute my
0: expertise in Russia, and
1: Russian uh, doctrine and strategy. So that life story is very germane to Putin's playbook, actually, and it's sort of uh, the book intertwines these, uh, these two stories. So that's how I made it Uh, interesting, and people who actually have read it uh, like the book a lot. Um, I also wanted my book to serve as a Russia 101 SOP manual, if you will, the standard operating procedure, if you will, that future intelligence officers and national security professionals could use in order to help them familiarize themselves with the Russian target, um, to help formulate policy towards Russia. And I wanted my book to basically be a contribution to US national security. So I wrote it as an unclassified intelligence assessment of Russia's master plan that was developed by the general staff on Putin's orders in order to destabilize America. Why did I want to make such contribution to the intelligence community? It's uh, because believe it or not, there's um, limited expertise in the IC on Russia Specifically on Russian doctrine and strategy and Putin's intentions, right? The intelligence community has been preoccupied with many, many things, you know, in the past 20 years and really since the collapse of the Soviet Union. There was an expectation not only by uh, U.S. analysts and national security professionals, but also Western analysts in general, that Russia will become a democratic society and will no longer present a threat to the United States and the West. While that didn't happen, it was never in the cards, really. Uh, because there's absolutely nothing in Russia's history that would point to the possibility of Russia becoming a democracy anytime soon. At least the democracy in the sense that uh, Americans view democracy. And, and so, uh, Russia has always viewed the United States as an adversary number one or uh, the main enemy, if you will, uh, that's what they refer to. to um, and to this day, this threat perception exists, not only um, in the Kremlin, but among some of the Russian people as well. So um, going back to expertise,
0: So we've been focusing on global war on terror,
1: you know, putting all of our resources and uh, prioritizing that type of fight, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, you name it. Uh, China has been um, our focus for a while. So uh, Russia has sort of uh, slipped through the cracks, if you will, and... um, former CIA director Gina Haspel uh, herself, who served um, during former President Trump's um, uh, presidency, acknowledged herself that uh, the intelligence community was only starting to pay serious attention to Russia. And in order to pay serious attention, you really need to understand uh, your target. So, I um, made my contribution along with a lot of other people, you know, at least there was a small, you know, um, community of uh, Russia experts in the IC, and we tried to make sure to provide warning to uh, President Obama and uh, his foreign policy experts, the defense community about how Russia perceives the United States and what kind of preparations are underway for a conflict that Moscow believes is inevitable with the United States. So we did that. Um, Unfortunately, not much attention was paid, you know, at the senior echelons uh, within the upper echelons of uh, U.S. government because there was a uh, sense that there needed to be a reset uh, with the Russians, and um, that's actually something that every U.S. president has tried to do. Uh, It's not just President Obama, but pretty much uh, everyone since the collapse of the Soviet Union has tried that policy to become um, friends, if you will, with Russia, but that goal is unachievable. And I explain that uh, in my book. So there's a um, a chapter or rather an epilogue called uh, Why Can't We Be Friends? I will tell you a little bit uh, about the structure. So the way that I organize the book is um, there are eight chapters. Five of them present the various tools, both kinetic and and non-kinetic, that have been developed on Putin's orders by general staff and Russian military and Russian intelligence services in order to be used to destabilize, weaken, undermine America, and also to fight an actual war, the shooting war, if you will, using um, President Biden's words. So those tools are, and I'm gonna tell you the titles of the chapter, of the chapters. So Putin's Star Wars, lasers, jammers, and satellite killers. That's actually is uh, very relevant today because you may have heard that yesterday, Russia has tested what is called an anti-satellite missile called the NADOL. So Putin's playbook is unfolding right in front of our eyes and there are very significant implications for US security that um, probably ordinary Americans don't realize, you know, uh, even if they may have read the news about the test. So my book explains what really the uh, implication is. So that is Putin's weapon, so to speak, number one. Weapon number two is cyber. Cyber weapons waging war on US networks and America's minds. That is the title of the next chapter. The next one is Spies and Disruptors Infiltrating America. In that chapter, I talk about various types of spies, if you will, uh, both overt and covert, and um, that the Russian government uses consistently to not only collect intelligence, but also to conduct operations. One of the differences between the United States and Russia's employment of intelligence as a statecraft is this. US intelligence primarily does collection or traditional espionage in limited instances we do covert action right that has to be authorized by the president himself the russians not only do espionage but what is called active measures these are influence operations and the proportions between the actual operations that are intended to collect intelligence vis-a-vis actually influence whether it's u.s policy whether it's uh, u.s perception of reality if you will which is what happened um, during russia's intervention in the 2016 presidential elections so that percentage is um, roughly the same and in some cases active measures actually outweighs the traditional um, espionage the next chapter is called active measures subversion election sabotage and assassinations so we all have heard about i'll I'll start with this uh, assassinations and intimidations we know that um Russia has deployed uh, this type of uh, weapon, if you will, against um, Litvinenko, who was a British citizen, and uh, using actually uh, polonium to poison him in order to eliminate him because he was a threat to Putin's government. Russia actually uh, more recently used a uh, military-grade nerve agent called Novichok to poison uh, former GRU officer Skripal and his daughter. There are multiple other instances that um, average American is not aware of that I describe in the book, including uh, Russia's use of intimidation all the way to uh, assassination, including on US soil and on Western soil. And of course, I dedicate some portion of my book to Russia's election interference, which is a technique that the Russian intelligence services have been using for decades. What happened in 2016 is not unique. They've done it for a long time. What's different is that Russia has weaponized technology. It has weaponized cyber, and it has weaponized information operations. And there's a difference also between the US conception of cyber doctrine and Russian cyber doctrine or more accurately, they call it information confrontation. And I described that uh, in my book. Finally, I, um, I discussed the military option, the, the chapter called Putin's Military Option Things That Go Bang. So, the plan that was developed is specifically tailored towards the United States. So the Russians have watched
0: how the US and NATO
1: conduct warfare, they've done it for the past 20 years. They have analyzed our military campaigns in Kosovo, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, and they've made certain conclusions. And that conclusion, those conclusions rather, are A, is that the United States is highly reliant on technology to conduct military operations, specifically satellites, and hence we see Russia developing and testing and fielding a whole array of what's called counter space weapons. It's because they view our space superiority as also our vulnerability. And two, the Russians concluded that because the United States is superior in terms of um, kinetic capability, So Russia has developed non-kinetic capability, which allows it, in Russia's view, to dominate escalation. So there's an escalation ladder that the general staff has conceptualized that's not unlike the Herman Kahn's nuclear escalation ladder. And so with the use of these various instruments and techniques the Russians believe that they can out-escalate the United States, in a conflict, that is. So, if these various techniques don't work, that are non-kinetic, Moscow is prepared to use kinetic option, the so-called uh, precision-guided weaponry, which is a very similar capability that includes um, highly technical command and control, similar to what we are doing. Um, And uh, if that doesn't work in order to win the conflict, Russia is prepared to go nuclear. Which conflict are we talking about here? There's absolutely no plan for the Russians to put boots on the ground in America. There's no plan to launch a bolt out of the blue sky missile strike on America. That's not what we're talking about. But what we're talking about is war in Europe. Why does Russia believe that Russia and the United States are currently on a collision course in terms of our geopolitical um, strategy. Both the United States and Russia are fighting for influence in Eurasia. What are we talking about here? Russia perceives its post-Soviet states, Ukraine, Georgia, Belarus, various stands, as its privileged sphere of influence. Why? Because Moscow has relied on this so-called strategic buffer for its own security. It has been a long time US policy not to allow Russia to dominate Eurasia since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And therefore, The United States has decided that it is in our interest to quote unquote democratize countries like Ukraine, Georgia, and help them, you know, pursue their own development path, right? Well, Putin views it as a threat. And you probably have heard it in the news that um, Putin has uh, amassed about 114,000 troops and heavy equipment right now along the Ukrainian border, and uh, which has really unsettled the Pentagon and uh, the White House and NATO because um, there's a concern that there could be an imminent invasion of Ukraine. And some analysts believe that we should expedite Ukraine's um, admission to NATO, which, in those experts' view, would increase the safety and security of Ukraine, the backing of the United States. Well, I disagree with that assessment. But um, bottom line is that Ukraine is a contested area. Putin has articulated that admission of ukraine into the european union and nato would be his red line and so this is what the potential conflict is about i also describe in my book the various pathways to war because no war just you know occurs out of the blue Most wars have started because of the misinterpretation and miscalculation, which is actually the case that we're concerned about because there are a lot of activities right now going on in the Black Sea, in Eurasia, in Syria, where there's a high probability of a confrontation, actually kinetic confrontation between US and um, Russian forces. What we see today along the border with Ukraine is heavy weaponry tanks, the so-called uh, little green men, GRU officers, SVR officers, And um, the concern is obviously that uh, Russia could possibly repeat what happened in 2014 when it um, invaded Ukraine and annexed Crimea. So speaking about uh, U.S. conventional superiority and uh, Russia's new way of warfare, As I said, Russia views itself inferior in terms of its kinetic capability. It is trying to close this gap to the point where the Pentagon currently considers Russia its near-peer competitor. Uh, But still, Russia believes that um, it is easier, if you will, to bypass US conventional superiority with a new way of war, or the so-called controlled instability strategy. And that's what was used uh, in Ukraine. Some analysts called it uh, hybrid warfare. Um, this term is an incorrect term. It doesn't strategy the correct term is either strategy of indirect action or strategy of controlled instability. The Russians also sometimes refer to it as asymmetric strategy. So that is how uh, Russia, which studied Sun Tzu, they're very astute students of Sun Tzu and uh, various other Western strategists such as uh, Soli Hart, who was the thought leader behind strategy of indirect action. And so they believe that the best way of waging war against america is below the threshold of kinetic response so today's cyber attacks that we see that russia conducts striking our you know government corporate networks think tanks all the way to the point where They attack our critical infrastructure, including our gasoline reserves, our food supply, our nuclear facility, and our government has not really been uh, proactive in terms of um, deterrence strategy and hasn't really responded much. uh, Russians have been doing it for about 30 years, conducting uh, cyber warfare, targeting the United States. The uh, very first uh, cyber operation uh, called Moonlight Maze uh, took place in uh, the 90s and uh, the Russians are still attacking our network relentlessly. In the beginning of the book i explained as i said why we cannot be friends as i said our foreign policies are directly at odds with russia's foreign policy so it's not possible to be friends with russia that is why every single president has failed when they try to use uh, this approach. It is, however, possible to be a transactional partner, partner probably a, 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 a wrong word, transactional agent, if you will, uh, uh, with Russia, but there are very, very few areas of uh, mutual interest. So um, that, that, that is why it is very difficult to deal with the Russians, and even when we have to deal with them, we always have to watch our back, right? The counterintelligence uh, aspect is very significant when it comes to... So chapter one, I'm going back a little bit. First, I, I explained to you the, the five instrument, right? Again, we have cyber, we have space, uh, counter space, we have spies and disruptors, we have active measures that encapsulates a whole... Uh, serious or various tactics, and we have military options, which includes nuclear, by the way. Um, The Russian doctrine, indeed, today is even more dangerous than the doctrine that the Russians adhere to during the Cold War. So going going back, I explained uh, in first chapter how Russia is waging war today on America. So the cyber attacks that we hear in the news about is just the tip of the iceberg. There are a lot of other things that are going on that sometimes news media doesn't report. Um, I also talk about in chapter two about Putin's wish list. I call the Putin's wish list, America's nightmare. And I explain what the actual goals are, as well as threat perceptions, why it is that Putin and his government believe that America presents the top security threat to Russia. And they codified it as a threat. In key strategic planning documents, such as the military doctrine, the national security strategy, the foreign policy concept, the information security. So all of these, um, it's it's actually very, very consistent. So, and Russia has been talking about it for at least a couple of decades. So I really don't understand it when um, our leaders in the intelligence community come out and they say, oh, we don't really know what uh, Putin's intentions are. Well, of course, we know all it takes is that, you know. You have to to do your homework, right? And and unfortunately, um, we as an institution, the national um, security community and the intelligence community have not done as good of a job on the Russian target as the Russians did on us, right? This is why they've been pretty successful if you will applying their strategy of indirect action and control instability targeting us whether it's our elections our computer networks uh ransomware you name it right and um that's because they do their homework always right it doesn't it doesn't really matter so we prioritize our targets. Like like I said, um, Gina Haspel, uh, President Trump's CIA director, acknowledged that um, the intelligence community was only then switching its priority to Russia because we, you know, sometimes we're having trouble working on multiple targets, if you will, you know, putting our resources on global war on terror, You know, this, that and the other, uh, in some instances, chasing bright and shiny objects while the Russians always do strategic intelligence on the United States, no matter what. And so that allows them to really uh, develop a tailored strategy that they believe will work to achieve their goals. And. in Chapter Three, I, that I titled "Russia Organizes for War," I actually describe the plan. The plan exists, so uh, the title "Putin's Playbook" is just a colloquial, you know, way of describing this plan. So um, the plan was adopted approximately in uh, 20. Fourteen, and so that chapter actually goes into various details of what that plan uh, uh, consists of. So um, this is pretty much it as far as the content is concerned. I would like to also give you uh, the backstory. On what it took to publish this book, as you know, each intelligence officer has to approve the book. If we or form former intelligence officer, which I am, uh, we go through the what's called the pre-publication review process. So um, I've gone through this process and. Um, You can see the result of it in the book, and sometimes it's not encouraging result, but it is what it is. Um, So for example, we see uh, this is chapter seven, actually, um, on election interference. So there are a lot of, uh, there's 31 pages of uh, redactions that uh, my former agency, uh, DIA and CIA, decided uh, that it was classified information. And uh, although I strongly disagreed with them because everything is sourced in this book, um, there are multiple, multiple uh, sources in the original Russian language of which I'm a fluent speaker, uh, but I had to comply uh, with this process. So um, when you see the book, um, don't be discouraged by the blackouts. You can still uh, make a lot of sense out of this book. And um, finally, you can uh, purchase the book pretty much anywhere where you buy books, whether it's Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. Um, regular uh, bookstore. You can also check out my website, rebeccacoffler.com. And, um, and um, they, there you go. That is the book. I think uh, we have a few minutes to take the questions and uh, I will be happy to do so.
0: All right. Yes. So we have time to take some questions. If you have questions for Rebecca, please feel free to comment in the Q&A section at the bottom of your Zoom screen. And we did have a few questions come in during your presentation. So um, I'll ask you the first one now. Um, Would you please speak to Russia government's relationship with organized crime and Russia's use of organized crime to further its state's interests, such as invasion of Crimea and competitive statecraft against the United States? So,
1: yes, uh, Russian government definitely uses uh, organized crime. Uh, One of the very widespread uh, employments is the use of cyber criminals. Russian intelligence agencies employ third parties to conduct cyber attacks on the United States. And uh, that is a very standard uh, trade craft. It gives them plausible deniability. So uh, the attacks that were conducted on uh, JBS and on Colonial Pipeline were actually conducted by such third parties. We have a uh, recent development about perhaps a month old where uh, President Biden has returned a, a very dangerous cyber criminal back to his native Russia believing that uh, Putin would arrest him. Uh, This guy's name is, unfortunately, there's a misunderstanding perhaps or naivete that exists um, in the administration with regard to how Russia uses uh, hackers to achieve state objectives. So the hope was that um, Putin will in and, and, his law enforcement will arrest this guy. And the Russians actually made a very big show of it when uh, this person was returned. And in addition to that, President Biden gave a whole list and his wife, White House, a whole list of uh, Russian hackers to President Putin asking them for to make arrests, but uh, that is unlikely to happen. These um, cyber criminals will likely be working for Mother Russia, if you will, um, furthering the objectives of the Russian state. So that is the
0: most of criminals. Thank you. Um, My next question, Uh, What role do you see interest groups in making of Russian foreign and domestic policies?
1: Say it one more time. I'm sorry, I didn't quite get.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, Mm -hmm. What role do you see interest groups in the making of Russian foreign and domestic policies?
1: interest gr- us interest groups russian interest groups could, could we get a little clarification i'm not sure i'm following
0: yes yeah, so i will allow that I'll give me an
1: example yeah, yeah give an example uh, if possible
0: of an interest group okay yeah and so I maybe will... in the meantime we can take yeah we'll skip to another mm-hmm. question and if that attendee wants to clarify that um, and we can uh, make sure to ask that question. Um, mm-hmm. So sure. the next question, um, what tools should we use to fight back against Putin?
1: Um, okay, this is a very broad question. It actually depends what, um, what we're trying to fight, right? So I'll answer this this way. So the best, uh, way to fight Putin is not to be in the position of fighting back right Russians sort of have penetrated what we call the OODA loop right um and our decision making cycle if you will by studying how Americans think and so they were able to really playing tricks, if you will. you know. Um, if you remember how Putin managed to convince former President Obama that Russia is going to remove chemical weapons uh, from Syria, right? Well, that never happened, and uh, that was never going to happen. But Putin actually wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times appealing to American people not to observe the so-called enforcement of the red line that President Obama uh, stated with regard to Syria. Um, The Russians understand how highly sensitive Americans are to war casualties. And so Putin was able to manipulate us and specifically uh, President Obama's uh, national security experts. and so that's the best way is to actually not to be in that position, right? The same with cyber. But now that we are in this position, the best way again is deterrence. There has to be a very regard to Putin's cyber warfare. It's not easy to do. I, I, I won't pretend that it's easy. And that is exactly why we as a community have been very hesitant in um, responding to Russian cyber attacks because cyber is actually the domain where conflict can escalate very quickly in the military domain all the way to nuclear. And the Russians have actually adopted the so-called escalate to de-escalate strategy. So, but it needs to be done, right? One of the other things that should have been done and unfortunately wasn't was um, sort of, um, I would say, you got to Nord Stream, right? Remember how uh, sanctions were placed on Nord Stream. It was very important, not only for the purposes of deterring Russia from future, you know, hostile um action towards the United States, that but what it would work is because the profits from Russia's energy sector, oil and gas, flow directly into military modernization programs, not allowing Nord Stream to actually. Um, start operating, reaching full operational capability, would have been a better course of action, you see? So strong stance, peace through strength, if you will. It's a, it's a very simple approach. And that's, it's possible, right? Ronald Reagan and his administration uh, did an excellent job of it. So we need to adopt that very same pragmatic and realistic approach.
0: Thank you. yeah and, and one um, attendee uh, mentioned said that you mentioned deterrence. Um, and you spoke a little bit about um, mm-hmm. you know, cyberspace um, and he kind of adds that. but his other mm-hmm. um, question is you know what actually would deter Russia and Eastern Europe? That is a very
1: tough one. Again, it depends specifically what you mean by Eastern Europe, right? Not, um, I would say not um, all animals are equal, if you will, when it comes to Eastern Europe. So if we are talking former Soviet states, right? If we are talking about Ukraine, Georgia, Belarus, it is impossible and I I hate saying it, it's impossible to deter Mm Putin from destabilizing Ukraine in order to keep it in Russia's orbit of influence, right? Because for centuries, Russia has relied on it as its security perimeter, whether you want it or not, whether it's right or wrong, this is how it is. And there's also a visceral relationship because of you know, the, the common culture, the common history, the common traditions, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when we talk about um, you know, Baltics, that's different, right? Uh, when we talk about uh, Eastern Poland, um, that's also different when it comes to deterrence. Um, so developing robust capability Both military and non-kinetic, including doctrine and strategy, in order to be able to fight successfully the conflict that Russia believes is inevitable is the best deterrence. And we should not be sparing any, you know, taxpayer dollars, if you will, on developing those capabilities. But capability alone is not going to do it. Because look at Afghanistan. Look at what happened. You know, we have the best warfighting force in military history. We have excellent, you know, servicemen and women dedicated patriotic. We have superior weaponry. And yet we were forced to, you know, withdraw after 20 years. And that is because a viable strategy was never developed. It is the mission of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment to develop such strategies, and that wasn't done. So, highly reliable on technology strategy doesn't work. You know, when the adversary can use something as simple as, you know, the IEDs to kill and maim, but most importantly, to psychologically dislodge. Um, superior U.S. military, that is not a good thing. So we need experts that understand the mindset and the battlefield conditions right there. And this is something that General Flynn talked about a lot when he was in DIA. Uh, So that needs to be done. That is the best deterrence in my view.
0: Another um, attendee question Um, Why is the U.S. a target for Russia rather than creating a defensive posture towards contiguous expansionist Red China? Read it to me one more time, please. Um, Why is the U.S. a target for Russia rather than creating a defensive posture um, towards expansionist Red China? Got it.
1: So Russia perceives both the United States and China as threats. The United States is threat number one for Russia. China is threat number two, which is more distant for them. The reason why Russia perceives the United States as a threat is because it believes that uh, we will not allow moscow to achieve its mission mission number one to restore russia as a great power if you will right with influence in eurasia to restore the so-called strategic buffer right and that is why they believe that the best way is preemptive, they call it, they have a preemptive doctrine, right, is the best defense is offense. Now, that being said, they also are developing capabilities to defend themselves against China. And this is why the Russians developed certain capabilities that violated the INF Treaty that President Trump decided to withdraw from after the Russians violated it that was not in response to US weapons development, but it was also a response to China's weapons development. So they do both. That's, that's the net sum of, uh, of what I said. They do both.
0: I think we have time for one more question. Um, so what do you believe is the most vulnerable when it comes to our critical infrastructure and Russian hackers?
1: Okay, so um, so as an intel person, okay, I am uh, having trouble talking about uh, blue vulnerabilities, right, in, in any kind of specificity. So I will respond um, this way. I will respond this way. Russia has the most superior arsenal of what they call cyber weapons of any foreign nation right they are second the government the russian government has put tremendous resources in developing those um, i call them cyber weapons it's not the right term basically cyber uh, cyber capabilities right Uh, and they also have put tremendous intellectual Firepower, if you will, in developing the doctrine on how to use them. So everything is vulnerable and it's really, it needs to be protected. So we knew about this problem for a long time and companies and U.S. government agencies made the decision, it's a cost benefit decision, not to invest in cyber defenses. This was not a smart decision, right? other decisions that were very short-sighted were made, such as Kaspersky, quote-unquote, uh, antivirus software was deployed on U.S. government networks, right? Th- this is absurd. So, um, so this needs to be taken seriously. There are capabilities right now that are provided by cybersecurity companies like Mandiant, and there's a whole host of them, right? These capabilities are not cheap. So, um, but the uh, government agencies, especially our like nuclear facilities, especially I mean, look, the the Russians have um, conducted cyber intrusions on key government agencies, the White House, the Pentagon, you know, including the uh, uh, networks of the Joint Chiefs. Um it's a, it's a mess It needs to be, it needs to be definitely, definitely given priority and defended, but also a very strong policy needs to be adopted against Russian cyber warfare. And this policy should not be giving out, you know, a roster of 16 critical infrastructure uh, facilities. Begging Putin not to attack them. That just doesn't work, right? It's very naive. Um, we need to defend those things and we need to start conducting offensive operations, not, you know, very, very consciously, but it needs to be done.
0: All right, so I believe that is all the time that we have this evening. Um, I would like to thank Rebecca for joining us and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook for this very informative and also very timely um, talk uh, on Rebecca's new book. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Edu. And also make sure to check out um, Recca's book, um, Putin's Playbook, at a store near you. <laughs> All right, thank you so much.